we're a second week into this new series at uh, the beginning of this year. And I, I guess we mentioned it last week and mentioned it briefly uh, this week. The theme of the series uh, is traveling without moving. The idea of progressing and journeying forward whilst at the same time not actually moving, which is a strange idea, isn't it? The reason that we're looking at it is because we want to prepare ourselves, we want to remind ourselves, how do we as um, a group of believers, as Christians in this church, in preparing ourselves for some changes that are going to go on, building work that we want to get done, the, up, the disruption that that brings, the ch all the other changes, groups changing, all that kind of thing inevitably as we go through that, that kind of change, maybe not being able to be here for a couple of Sundays. Um, how do we go through changes like that, um, staying in this place, not moving, but at the same time still traveling forward, still growing? One of the things that I want us to focus on today is the idea of learning to grow together. Learning to grow together. Uh, we're going to be looking at this very interesting little section in 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul was writing to this Corinthian church, which was a relatively new church. Um, it was, if you know Corinth, it's, it's on a strip of land uh, between two seas, and it was an incredibly important um, transit port. Uh, goods would pass through Corinth. It was a very rich place, very important place, very diverse place. Um, and like many seaports, it kind of had a heritage of uh, moral challenges and the approaches of people. It was known that the people of Corinth were considered in the ancient world to be right on the kind of the leading edge of being wacky and crazy and out there. That was the, that was the kind of reputation that Corinth had. Uh, and the amazing thing that we find is that Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. I find that really exciting to see that in the uh, first century of the church's growth, that churches were being established in the most surprising of places, the kind of places that you would not expect the message of the gospel to flourish. Uh, I guess that we could say that has been the pattern of the church down through the past hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, I saw a statistic uh, a few days ago. I wish it's just come to mind. The number of Christians uh, in China, about 280,000 um, uh, during the, at the end of the, um, the, the, the kind of uh, people's re uh, re um, uh, revolution. That's the word I was looking for, the people's revolution. Estimated number of Christians by 2018, end of this year, I think it was, 70 million, 70 million Christians, when within some of our lifetime, there wasn't more than a relative handful, and that was in decline. A, a, a country where you would not expect the Christian faith to grow, we see the Christian faith growing. 
That's what has been the pattern of the church again and again. And Corinth was like that. We see the church growing in a surprising place. We already know that Paul has written a letter previously to this, um, to this city. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. We read about the fact that he's written a letter to them. That's interesting, isn't it? He's written a letter to them which is not in our Bible. So why have we got these two letters uh, and not that letter? It would seem to me that uh, Paul, everything that Paul wrote was not automatically the inspired Word of God just because it was him that wrote it. The church worked out over time that God was speaking through certain communications. And one of the features that became really important to the church in identifying what was God speaking was when it became applicable to all sorts of churches, to everybody, rather than just that one little situation. So I kind of look at that and I think, how on earth does the idea of meat sacrificed to idols and the issues surrounding that, how does that play out for us today? Why, why is it important for us? Or is it something that we just kind of pass out there and we say, it was way back there, it was part of the growth of the church? No. I think we can draw from this some really, really important principles to help us to grow, to keep traveling forward in our faith. It opens up with this statement, now about, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. That's, if you like, the opening statement that could sit as a banner over the whole of the rest of our thinking. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What do we want in our church? Well, the interesting thing is that as it works out, we need to grow in our knowledge. That's clear as we go through it. But the overarching thing, the way that we use that, the way that that is important to us, the goal, the focus, the significance, our overriding desire is to grow in love. To grow in love. Now, we need to grow in our knowledge and understanding to be able to do that well. But one of the things that I think is one of the most devastating um, patterns of behavior that can happen in a church is when we think that we are growing in knowledge because we're being really smart about our Bibles but we're not growing in love towards each other. If that's happening, it is devastating. It's devastating. So as we head into this year, I want, us, I want 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to be kind of this, almost a mantra of our hearts. However we grow, I want us to grow in love. Now as you look at that, it's, it's a demand on us, but it's also filled with hope, isn't it? Imagine being in a place where the overwhelming desire is to love each other. That, is, that sounds a bit cheesy, to be honest. But the kind of love that we're talking about is the kind of love described by Jesus 
who laid down his life for us. That's the kind of love, the self-sacrificing love, the love which is robust and tough and hard for the sake of others, to protect, to care, to love, to see grow, to see nourish, to see flourish. That is an amazing idea. That is the overriding idea of the, of the Christian faith. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. So let's see how this works out. Well, firstly, let's get our heads around this issue. Because he says, now about food sacrifice to idols. We all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up uh, while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about food sacrifice to idols. <laughs> he, could, he kind of goes on a little bit of a moment to say, I'm going to say, just let, make sure we're thinking about love. Now, back to this idea of food sacrifice to idols. I want you to imagine for a minute walking around the city of Corinth. You're surrounded by pagan temples, which a few years ago was absolutely normal to you. In fact, you engaged in all of the um, cultic practice of those temples. If you wanted to make sure that your next year, 2018, or rather year 18 maybe, <laughs> was going to be a good year, you'd go down to the temple uh, and you would make sure that the meat that you were going to buy was sacrificed to an idol, presented to an idol, uh, and you would use that mechanism to make sure that blessing was going to be on your home, blessing was going to be on Corinth, Corinth was going to be known to be a great place because it was protected by the gods, and that was normal life. You lived in a world which was saturated, saturated with the gods. Everything that you did was shaped by the gods. Everything that you did was aimed to appease them. Everything that you did, every activity that you engaged in, you would think about how best to do this so that I can manipulate the minds of the gods to take care of me during this next uh, way of thinking. That, that was the way that the world thought. It was the... It was the imagination of how the world worked. Some of you might have seen the kind of, um, you know, some of the old movies, Jason and the Argonauts. Remember Jason and the Argonauts, the art ship, the Argo, with the god that was carved to be supposedly, initially brought, put on the front of the ship, but Jason said, no, we're going to put it on the back of the ship so that the god can look down over us. I always remember as a kid watching the ship sink and the the God kind of wink. I thought that was quite an interesting little moment. Um, but the, God, the gods were there to be appeased, to be shaped for your blessing. Now, something dramatic has happened in your life. You've suddenly come to faith in one God. So you've previously believed in the idea of many gods, gods who themselves are competing with each other, and now you've come to the, the realization that there is one true living God. And that God is known through Jesus. And that Jesus has sacrificed 
himself for you to live. Your life has been turned upside down. Absolutely turned upside down. You were sacrificing before, and now you realize that Jesus has sacrificed himself for you. So sacrifice in your relationship with God is now ended. It's stopped. A most dramatic change has gone on in your life. And more than that, you've found yourself in a group of people who believe the same. You've formed a church. You've become part of the church. Now you go out on Monday morning to buy the meat for the week. Actually, I think it probably would be a special occasion, but let's imagine, let's place ourselves kind of back there. You're buying buying the meat for the week, and you are suddenly faced with a conscience crisis. What do I do about this meat which has been sacrificed to the gods when I believe that Jesus is the one sacrifice for me? How do I reconcile that? I I can't eat this meat anymore because that's me taking part in that pattern of behavior. Do you see the crisis? This is not a little thing. The challenge is... It's, it's a huge thing in first century Corinth, but it's very, very difficult for us to place ourselves in an understanding of that. There are parts of the world where this is the issue that people are facing right now. But for West Yorkshire in the 21st century, it's difficult. What has happened to somebody in the first century that looks like what has happened to us? They have changed their worldview. They've come to terms now with a view of the world which is shaped by Jesus and everything has now changed. That's what links us, doesn't it, with first century Corinth. Or at least it should. And there is the challenge, first off. What the folks in Corinth had realized is that it is so dramatic, this change, that they are having to work out all sorts of issues of how they live. I think one of the great challenges in 21st century West Yorkshire is that we don't struggle enough about issues of how we should live. We, we don't, we, because, because our, for many of us, our Christian faith is something that's kind of, yeah, it's something that I am over here, But it is not something that has totally absorbed and inhabited every part of me. So that my working life, my leisure activities, the attitudes that I have with my friends and family and relations, people who I work with, people in the street, the things that I do, the spare money that I've got, the time that I've got for for, for, uh, activities outside of work, Do we consider that our life is so massively shaped now by our Christian faith that it impacts all of those? I guess the Corinthian church understood it because it was a real connection with a practice of faith that was in direct competition with a practice of faith which they previously experienced. 
But I think it does have relevance for us today. And the reason I think is this. What they were doing in Corinth by the use of the gods and the sacrifices of the gods, they were working out how to make well their lives. How do we make well our lives? How do we protect ourselves? Emotionally, psychologically, in the world that we live. How do we avoid disaster? I guess when you strip away the idea of gods, when you get rid of any concept of gods, the only place that we've got left to protect ourselves is inside of us. And if the Corinthian church were faced with the great challenge that they were going to be radically countercultural by understanding that their faith was in the one God, Jesus, rather than the many gods of the Roman Empire, they were going to be in for trouble. In exactly the same way, when we realize that our hope is not inside of us, but rather outside of us, in the God of heaven, in Jesus, then we're going to be in for trouble in, in, in our worldview. We're going to come into competition. I think underneath it all, for us today, because for the most part, we're not fearful of being invaded by marauding hordes like Corinth would have been, generally speaking. Our esteem is the most threatened possession that we have. Our well-being. We look inside of us. So we've embraced a new faith. Look at how it works. The first thing that we see then in this change is a faith embraced. If you're a Roman, Greco-Roman, you would have believed that warriors went to, after death, to the Elysium fields. Some of you would hear that word Elysium and it would spark off thoughts from a great movie. If you were an ordinary citizen, you would believe after death you would go to the plain of Asphodel. However, if you had committed some sort of crime against society, not a crime against yourself or your family, but some crime against society, you'd be going, you would be sent to Tartarus to be tortured by the Furies until you've paid your debt, and then you could go to your destiny. Wow. Now we're saying, I believe in Jesus, who has sacrificed himself so that I might live. Because I do not deserve, whether I'm a warrior, whether I'm an ordinary citizen, whoever I am, I do not deserve to be in his presence. But not by my clever manipulation of the gods or by my status in society, but by faith in Jesus, I believe that I am saved to be present with him when I die. The turnaround is so amazing. And so it is not surprising that people who first come to faith realize that in that embracing of faith, everything has to change. I can't eat that meat anymore. 
I guess we might see that in our do you, do you remember some of your early kind of enthusiasms in the Christian faith, a kind of, a kind of almost determination to be whiter than white and everything? And you, you might feel as if you've slipped. What I want to encourage you is not to slip, but to grow. What does growing look like? You've embraced faith, firstly. Secondly, growing faith looks like this. So then, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is but one Lord Jesus through whom all things came and through whom we live. Our growing faith is the realization that God is supreme over. You see, the the issue that they had in Corinth was This God that I now trust seems now to be in competition with all of these other gods. And therefore, I've got to follow this God as best I can. And then there is a calming, growing in our understanding. God is bigger than all of these other ideas of God. He is supreme over all of these other ideas of God because He's true. Because He's real. Because He lives. And therefore, those things that I thought were in competition and were absolutely terrifying are no longer frightening to me anymore. I can eat that meat which has been sacrificed to an idol because what's that idol? It's a bit of rock or a piece of wood or an idea, or a philosophy. It is the God in Jesus who truly lives, who is above that, and therefore that becomes insignificant in eating this meat. I am liberated, I am freed as my faith grows. That's great news. That is great news. How does it work? I become a Christian and I hear, all of, I hear this idea that what I have done is I've looked inside of myself and I've tried to build up my self-esteem and actually my hope is not inside of me, it's in this Jesus. So in my infant state, I say, all of that stuff, I've got to get rid of that, I've got to be totally focused on Jesus and then I grow. And I realize, actually, some of those things, I can take the ideas, I can take the thoughts, and I can realize that God is above them, and my status, my self-esteem is a truly valued thing. It is. It's not to be jettisoned but it's to find its value in Jesus. It is a great thing because my self-esteem is a God-given thing, just like meat. 
Meat is a God-given thing. When it's sacrificed to idols, I suddenly think it's terrible. But when I realize that I am esteemed in God, I can now take hold of some of those things and realize, wow, in God I am valued. I don't need to be on the floor anymore beating myself up because God loves me, God values me, and I can rise because I am liberated. Is that great news? Is that great news for us? The, the reorientation of our value. Our value was once something that I had to work hard to build up, to manipulate so that I am safe, and now I realize I don't need to manipulate it anymore. It is valued in Jesus. It is secure. It is profoundly protected. And it is eternal. That's who I am. And it's safe. I have grown in my knowledge. How do I use that knowledge? How do I use that growth? Look at what verse 9 says. So I've grown in my faith, but what does mature faith look like? Mature faith looks like this. Be careful, however that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, You sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Paul actually says in that, you might might be eating in an idol's temple and eating meat. You're free to do that. That that is mind-blowing, isn't it? Even as we look back, that seems a huge thing for him to say. But do you see the surprising description of what is weak? You see, I, I would have thought that in that context, somebody who's gone and started eating meat in an idol's temple... When I'm a believer in Jesus and they're a believer in Jesus, they're the ones who are weak, aren't they? They're the ones who are weak because they've gone and done that. (laughs) But actually what Paul is saying is that those who are bound by that immature understanding of meat are the ones whose conscience is weak. They're still struggling to grow. Now, how do you use your knowledge to help them grow? Right the way back to the beginning. You never use your knowledge to crush them. You do everything to protect them, to help them to grow, to build them up, so that you will sacrifice some things so that you don't cause them to fall. 
That's love when we are prepared to sacrifice our rights to protect those who are still growing up in faith. That's amazing love. That's the, that's the way this idea is relevant to us today, but circles back to what Paul opens up with. Well, how does that work out? Do you know, I have found it so difficult to try to work out how does this work for us today. It, it's easy to state the principle, but it's really difficult to, to put the finger on examples of what does this look like. But, but I think it might work something like this. When I'm young and, and kind of suddenly realizing that my identity is in Jesus I'm going to get rid of and shun all of those ideas of building up my identity outside of Jesus. So anything that looks anything remotely like uh, self-esteem or personal growth or whatever it might be, I'll get rid of them. And then I grow a bit and I realize that actually I can grow in those ways, but when I become mature, I don't lord those ideas over other people who are still in that weak state. It's a bit like this. How often do we realize that there are things that we protect our children from when they are young? Things that we might discuss, things that we might have conversations about, you know, the, the terrible things that are going on in the world. We don't hold those conversations with little children because we want to protect them. It's not that they're not real. It's not that they're not happening. It's not that we need to shun away from them, but we protect them. It's really easy for us to try to help our children with the plethora of celebrity idea, with the ideas of entertainment uh, and social constructions of value, it's really easy for us to protect our little children in our minds and say, I don't want them to go into those kind of places to find their identity. I want to protect them. I know I can't hide them away from all of those things as they get older, but I want to help them to grow so that they know how to live in this world, not impacted by all of that crazy identity stuff which is going on. I want to help them to grow. And exactly the same applies for us as we see that there might be those who need to shun some things as they gr learn to grow up. Whatever that might be, they cut off from certain activities. They cut off from certain patterns of behavior because they've realized what a dramatic change has gone on in their lives, we do them a disservice when we behave blatantly in front of them in our freedom to do things which can be actually dangerous for them because they're not ready yet. I think Peter has got it bang on when he says some of the things that Paul writes are really complex and hard to get your head around. He 
says that. I think it's in 2 Peter. I think this is tough in one sense. It's very, very difficult to work out how it works. But it is really, really easy to describe the principles on which it is built. And the principle is this. I'll sacrifice meat for the sake of somebody who's terrified to eat it. That's really easy, isn't it? Whatever it is that we're working with in 21st century Western culture, my view is this. I will be prepared to sacrifice whatever I need to sacrifice because I love that young, growing believer in Jesus. And I want to see them flourish. That doesn't mean that they are able to suddenly hold me to ransom so that I'm never doing anything ever again. No, of course not. It means that we grow, we nurture, we care for each other. That is, this description of idols and meats, it's profoundly complex, yet really simple to say, are you a church which is growing in your love for each other in this kind of way? Here's the thing. You might be looking on at this thinking, what is, what is this all about? Why would, I, why would I want to be part of that? Why is that of any value whatsoever? It is valuable because of this. Because we all know that we need to be truly truly loved <laughs> and really in all of our failing messed up crazy ways the church should be representing that kind of love to the world that we are placed in and therefore what we are becomes appealing it becomes appealing a, a kind of a strange voice speaking about a different kind of attitude to each other than the world that we live in. If we can get our heads around that, if we can see that observed, then we will grow together. <laughs>